guitar. Give you love for freedom. And with nations with the greatest freedom. Are you with the enemy? There's no in between. Thank you for joining us, everybody. This is The Status Quo. I am your host, Matt Freeman. And guys, if you listen to this channel, you know this, that there's a lot of uh, dense information, propaganda, and nonsense that you see on your phone, on social media, all day, every day. But lucky for us, we got Monica Perez. This is a good time. Why don't you go ahead and give us uh, your contact info? All right. My first gig is the Monica Perez Show, which I do on WSB Radio in Atlanta. It's terrestrial, and it's a very interesting opportunity to reach out to people and kind of a push rather than a pull. So it's people who are not ready necessarily to hear what I have to say. Then my producer on that show, Brad Binkley, and I do a podcast. The deep dive of what we do is the Propaganda Report. But then a couple of months ago, I just realized, you know, I've, for years I've noticed that there has been an absolute absence of kind of daily news without propaganda and or like, I don't know, sometimes there's a theme, there's an agenda. I just wanted to put something out there, 30 minutes a day of the top stories without all that propaganda. So we launched the drive time news blast which we do every day but you can also find that at thepropreport.com well that's an absolutely great service and uh it's allowed me to really uh reduce my con or reduce my consumption of uh, mainstream news which is an uh you know a big um, very much appreciated because it gives me back a little bit of my sanity i'm not yelling at the tv constantly uh quite so much so the uh, wsb show is on saturdays right and yeah, then, th that show Saturday is three to six, unless there's football or basketball in the way. So you get it, it's usually a big stretch in the spring and summer. And then I kind of have time for this other stuff a little more during the fall and winter. Okay. And then everybody can find everything on the Propaganda yeah. Report podcast feed. Yeah. And you can go to thepropreport.com and we just put all the shows into that, into the prop, pro or any place where you get podcasts. Just go to Propaganda Report and you can get all of the feeds. Awesome. I don't think there's anybody else that's a straight-up radical libertarian ANCAP that's on terrestrial radio, so that's pretty awesome. Yes. I mean, I've had people spit their coffee out driving to work like, she's a what now? So, <laughs> and, and a lot of people love it. A lot of people love it. In the beginning, I got a lot of pushback from your regular conservative radio listener. But oh, I can only imagine. I'm the only person on the radio or in mainstream media, even what when people are think they're the hardest core conservative ever, and I'm the one out there saying, hey, man, this guy just made a huge deficit. This debt is out of control. Like we don't need, this is a violation of the bill of rights. So they get one over. They think they're like real law and order types and, and they can't really, they don't really know what to make of me, but <laughs> I, I at least, you know, they can count on me to have the integrity of sticking to the principles, my own principles and, and those of my principles that are enshrined in the bill of rights, among other things. Absolutely. And you know what else is funny about that is that the, the principles that most libertarians um, say, uh, 
that we have is, is the principles of conservatives claim they have. But of course there's a bit of a difference in application there. Um, and you know, one thing, uh, Scott Horton, big time, um, libertarian, uh, foreign policy guy, he always says, uh, about libertarians is that we're better conservatives than conservatives and we're better liberals than the liberals. That's is, absolutely uh, fantastic. Yeah. That's, he really puts that well. That's great. It is definitely. So speaking of, uh, deep dives, we got you here today to talk about, um, the uh, pre-crime program that that Bill Barr has uh, been quietly rolling out, and if you go look past the headlines, it's actually uh, a lot of this stuff is is pretty old. So I'll maybe give us pretty a pretty old. Is that what you said? Yeah, it's been around. Yeah, for that, a while. that's really funny because I was just noticing as I was like trying to dig deeper and deeper into the subject, and I would Google key phrases. It all came up with Obama era stuff, like word for word. Sometimes Department of Justice, Attorney General, like coming out of Sandy Hook. So much of it was teed up then. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's something that all you always say on your show too. It's going to take a Republican. Yes, like that was a caller. See, that was a caller on WSB. So. He said it's not the de that's w from which the law, the contrary law of democracy was born. <laughs> you're, all, you're only going to get the opposite of what you want from your own party because the other party just couldn't get away with it. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, I mean, I guess to a degree anyway, I, I, I hate to give too many compliments to any of these people in D.C., but uh, the Republicans seem to be pretty good at playing the opposition party, uh, at mm -hmm. least when they're outside of power. Um, and. Typically, it seems like when you have a, a Democrat in the White House uh, trying to um, enact any measures of actual gun control, the Republicans are at least people on the right side of the spectrum are pretty good about opposing it. But uh, man, last couple of years, a lot of these guys I know have been just been completely asleep at the wheel. About this well, stuff. that's the thing. That's why it's one of the reasons I wonder or I wonder if one of the reasons that 20 out of the 28 incumbents who are not running for reelection in Congress are Republicans because they really the service they deliver to their cronies is to be the controlled opposition, to make it look like someone's fighting the good fight without without actually having a chance to win. So, uh, and Ooh. this is one of the reasons why I think Trump will be reelected is that they will have a legislature absolutely full of Democrats and they'll pass all this garbage. And then Trump, who's known to be non-ideological or non-partisan or just this big deal maker, whatever, will just rubber stamp it all. And I think, I mean, a lot of stuff is going to fall into that category. Yeah, I, I can definitely, definitely see that coming. I think it's almost a certain he gets he gets reelected. But I mean, yeah, that's just it is that Trump's been pretty terrible on civil liberties. Uh, he's been pretty bad on gun rights. Um, he's enacted more gun control, I think, than Obama has at this point. So it's a it's definitely not looking good. But I think what I find most worrisome is the mental health type stuff like the, the red flag laws is one. Um, but the surveillance is, is the main thing, like uh, the, um, the response act. And actually, that's another one of those. Uh, one of those programs that was uh, floated after Sandy Hook, I think is when it was. Is that right? I I saw some stuff in, I saw the elements of it in some of the stuff I came up with when I was looking at for the Cornyn Response Act. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see, was it a specific act that they came up with at the time that was the same as his? Well, it, to my understanding is that part of the Response Act was – I had it pulled up here. Where is it? Um, okay, so part of it is uh, ISPs and 
trying to get them to collect, quote unquote, collaborate with uh, mm-hmm. law enforcement to prevent mass shootings. And that's that whole kind of private public partnership thing we've seen for the last few years, which uh, in an older time would have been called uh, fascism, you know? I, yes. I just, this is the thing that I used to get a lot of flack as a libertarian for not promoting private entities carrying out government functions. And that, like my problem is that we are required to give our money. And it was actually... My problem is that we are required to outsource these functions that we might not even want performed. Who actually does it more efficiently or more cronyistically? I don't care. I don't want them (laughs) to have to do it. But there was a a book written by Irving Kristol called uh, Neoconservatism, the Autobiography of an Idea, where he talks about, yeah, he talks about the conservative welfare state. That's his word, not mine. Mm -hmm. And he says that the difference is with the welfare state, like the liberal style, the government collects the money and provides the service. With the conservative one, the government directs you how to spend your money, requires you to spend it in a certain way. I mean, that doesn't, that that creates even worse problems sometimes because it creates this hyper demand, limited supply, outsized profits, lower quality, and the guys who are stealing the money on behalf of you know, providing the service get to keep it and flaunt it. Whereas at least with up, you know, good old fashioned communism, they had to hide it in the back room. <laughs> you know? So this whole thing, I just, the public private partnership, and it does another thing I just discovered, which is, I just like kind of had an epiphany that it from big tech to the human rights industry and other uh, things that are outsourced by the government, those entities don't actually have the same scrutiny, the same standards as the public entity would as far as having to adhere to stuff like free speech or transparency. So the public-private partnership, it, it, it really is the backdoor to fascism, if not fascism proper. Oh, yeah. And, well, just there's all kinds of problems created there. Number one is that these these companies that perform these services, uh, like you said, well, they get the, the profits they get, which, I mean, if you know anything about a government contracting, they – a lot of times they'll do, especially in defense, cost plus, which means that they get a guaranteed fixed percentage of profit. So they, and which usually far more than you would see in a, a free market, but uh, they get to plow those profits back into um, purchasing of influence, uh, getting their people in regulatory agencies and stuff like that to get more contracts. So it creates this self-flicking ice cream cone. That's problem. <laughs> you know, that's problem and, number and one. And cost plus completely eliminates any potential for the efficiencies of going to a private market. Because isn't that what government is? Out of control costs? Right. Absolutely. Isn't that what that captured production is? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, And so, then the second thing you were going to say. Well, we get the worst of both worlds. So with the conservative and the liberal welfare state, well, we have both. We have the uh, you know the big government programs that provide services for people directly by the government. We have big government programs that provide services for people through contracting, and we also have a government that tells you how to spend your money. So uh, that's that's what we get after you know years of this stuff. And I do also remember Irving Kristol in that book. I remember him saying something along the lines of uh, conservatives have to lose their fear of big government or something like that. Was yes, it? and yes, and he also said so. He said there this bookkeeping, this bookkeeping fetish they have is makes no he said they have to get over that. And what what he wanted us to do, what he wanted the America to do or the politicians to do was to create at the same time the liberal welfare state was in existence, 
create a conservative welfare state that brought the government to the brink of bankruptcy and forced the people to choose which one they wanted. And that that was the choice, like under Obama, like when Obama first came in and there was that big crisis, that was the choice. And of course, if you're going to have a welfare state, you're going to pick the guy who says he knows how to run a welfare state. I mean, <laughs> that's what you want. But that Obamacare was the tipping point, I feel like, to the conservative welfare state. Like I believe it was in England where their conservatives over there really just run on a platform of efficiency. Yeah. Not of not having a welfare state. And the way when that the way that happens is when you're when the people who are working or living off of money are more are more than 50 percent of that is from the government. So it can either be welfare or it can be captured industry like healthcare. Mm-hmm. Then they're never ever you're never gonna get a majority to vote for downsizing. That's why you have those austerity protests in Europe. So yeah. that's why I was so afraid of Obamacare is like that tipping point to get us over 50 percent so that we would have to embrace one kind of welfare state or another and there'd be no going back. Well, it's certain it certainly looks that way. Uh, I remember a lot of people speaking of Obamacare said that when, when it first got passed that we were never going to get rid of it. There was never going to not be an Affordable Care Act in the United States. And it looks like it's amazing how deeply entrenched it's gotten over the last few years. But speaking uh, you know, on on target here about what we've been talking about. You know, the other thing about Obamacare is that the amount of, and I think I've heard you talk about this before, is the amount of surveillance that the government gets from health records with Obamacare. Yeah, that that was a big part of the Sandy Hook executive orders. It's a big part of what Eric Holder was doing. And it, I actually heard some bigwigs say years and years ago, we need national health care just for the information. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty honest. Yeah. <laughs> Here's here is an interesting thing that you since you mentioned the Obamacare surveillance state stuff, mm-hmm. one one of the executive orders of Sandy Hook, I believe it was an executive order, but it certainly was right after Sandy Hook, was a very hard one feature in Obamacare was that pediatricians or doctors couldn't ask families about gun ownership. Yes. And and Sandy Hook, the executive orders after that eradicated it. There was also a ton of of press about Eric Holder violating, which I think was the 1974 Privacy Act, where if you you're way too young to remember this, but I I remember <laughs> I remember like at least my father would teach me that like you don't want to ever use the same number for things. Don't have your phone number, your social security number, your driver's license number, your insurance number, all the same number. Right. Because it makes it too easy for them to centralize information about you. And the 1974 Privacy Act, I believe, enshrined that and went further to say, well, it wouldn't have enshrined that, but it it would have prevented a national ID card maybe because that would be a state level thing. Mm -hmm. But what they did say is that you couldn't, that you couldn't share information across agencies without a reason or indefinitely or any of that. And a lot of what came down under Holder and then was, was enshrined without further discussion before that it was controversial, but after Sandy Hook, it was no longer controversial was, was some actual executive orders or laws or whatever, but also like the discussion, which is still going on where states and localities and the federal government and different agencies should share. Like now they talk about it as if it's, it's a goal that needs to be achieved rather, rather than something that 
is first of all, it violates existing law as far as I could read it and is not something you want to achieve. No, definitely not. I mean, it was to my understanding that, that, yeah, that was illegal. Um, at least the way the law stands now, but yeah, it is also like, once again, that's a, that's a huge backdoor. Just if you think about the wealth of information you can mine from somebody just from their, just from their healthcare records, since, you know, there's so much focus on, on mental health and the corporate press these days. Uh, if you have a list of somebody's prescription medication, you can probably guess what kind of conditions they have, if any. Did you hear about this project Nightingale from Google and Ascension partnering over the past 24 hours? Uh, no, goes I missed right that. to what you're saying. It goes. I mean, it's breaking news, real breaking news. It goes right to what you're saying, which is Google signed this. Google, by the way, Google's wife owns, started uh, 23andMe. So Sergey Brin's ex-wife started really? 23andMe. <laughs> but they're like, they, they're like, oh, the wife did. It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so the wife is a beard. Anyway, but uh, the Google, so Google and Ascension, so they have 23andMe. That's one thing, mm-hmm. which is your genetics. Yeah. And that has a lot of health information, which they oh, would yeah. not share with you for a while there. Right. But but this, they parted with Ascension, which is, I didn't realize this, the second largest healthcare provider in the country. It has 2,600 Catholic hospitals and clinics and stuff like that. And they have given over to Google all the medical records of everybody, of millions of people. And while other partnerships like that have been uh, what they call anonymized or de-identified, just terrible grammar, but whatever, (laughs) they're supposed to disconnect the information from any kind of personal label like your name. Yeah. But they have not. And they are, it's not an oversight. They're not glossing over it. They, part of the agreement, and I'm sure this is in some of the stuff that it's supposed to be maybe a loophole to HIPAA or they have to change HIPAA or whatever we sign off on, I don't know. But they, they did say that they would sell that information to people. They would use it in databases. They would have it interact with and also educate AI to make predictions about your health. It would, uh, they could sell it to people for targeted ads. And the, the big scary thing for that, I mean, if you think about the information that you give, you don't, you don't want to give that information. You don't, I, I don't even want to put it on the piece of paper thinking my own doctor's the only one who's going to see it. And now right. that medical records are totally digital. Yep. That information right now, as we speak is right now, there are 300 people working on moving that into a Google, a cloud, I think. Jeez. What a, <laughs> what a massive wealth of information that is too. I mean, that's, it, it really boggles the mind. <laughs> But uh, oh, what was I going to say is that, yeah, you know, the other thing too is, is, is like with genetics too. So, uh, I mean, my DNA is in multiple places already. The, the U.S., the federal government has it, the military does, and so does the state of Ohio. <laughs> you go yeah, through prison, they swab your mouth too. My DNA is out there too. And I think I, I'm pretty positive uh, my, somebody I know was applying for an Amazon warehouse job and had mm. to give a DNA sample. Um, you know, I'm sure that's primarily so they can add it into their database so they can teach their eye with it. I'm sure they're not worried about you getting caught yeah, up in the I package Yeah, I wondered why sorter. they would do it. It's just their way of getting info. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't think they're worried about you getting caught up in the package sorter and having to identify, you know, like your remains or something. That doesn't seem very yes, plausible to yes, me. Yes, yes, right. And I was thinking that about Uber too. They're like Uber Uber drivers kill people. I'm like, really? That is the most surveilled person on earth as an Uber driver. No kidding. But then they said they were going to use that as a launching off point to surveil all the riders all the time. Like just have constant like the information that you see, oh, share your location with someone. There's probably something out there that says they're not, Uber isn't allowed to just compile that information about you personally. And But now, because of safety, I guess they there's a call for that. I don't know. Certainly. Never never let a good crisis go to waste, of course. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the well, opportunities to generate information. I mean, that's the thing. That's the public-private problem that I have. Like yeah. Google and all these things that were generated by the government or seeded or fostered or protected or whatever mm-hmm. are just a backdoor to collecting data and monitoring speech and surveilling and censorship that you could not do with regular lawmaking. Absolutely. And and we we know that these companies work hand in glove with government. That's not even a secret anymore. Uh, and just the... <sighs> Well, I guess, you know, the first thing is that, this is an aside a little bit, but that so many of these companies, I, I really have questions about whether they'd appear in a, uh, like a natural market setting. Okay. So, so much of the venture capital, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, Monica, but I'm pretty sure it was InQtel that, uh, f- that provided a lot of the venture capital to Sergey Brin when he started Google. Is that, is that right? I don't know if it was. I know what InQtel is. It's the CIA's venture capital arm. Right. I don't know if it was InQtel that fostered Sergey Brin and Google. It was certainly DARPA and other money. There's no question about that. I read a great article in Quartz recently by a guy who was an insider at the time. I don't know why they put all this information out there, but it goes <laughs> into great depth of how what what Sergey Brin was all about and how. Google wasn't just like fostering this stuff. It was, they wanted, they were looking for someone who could create a search engine that would allow them to classify very small subgroups of people and personalities. And that's when I realized that, you know, you think with a search, you're like, ah, ha, ha, my search history would tell a funny story. It's like, oh, that's what they, that's, that's just what a start. It, that's the story they want more than Facebook is your yeah. search history. It seemed like to me that I just pre- pre- presented this psychological profile that ha- would allow them then to layer AI around you, a bunch of people around you who aren't even real. <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, this is stuff I've read. I mean, I'm not even making this up. It's no, like, this is when I piece together Google Jigsaw and Ugh. this stuff. And I just think they're they're really, and you read Cass Unseen stuff. And it just, it's like they are really manipulating people at the lowest levels. And they're never talking about doing it to make people good. <laughs> you no. know, they're, they're doing it to like, we're going to root out terrorism by creating terrorism videos. And then uh, we'll figure out part two after we put up some ISIS videos. It's like, well, right. And then they, they've got ISIS. And then in between, we're going to entrap a bunch of people that have nothing to do with it uh, and call them terrorists. And- right. Especially vulnerable people. That's, that's a perfect example where everyone, the guy knew was an FBI agent. They all acted like they were a militia or something like that, mm-hmm. white nationalists. And there was nobody but this guy who was clearly mental. And then he's going to jail forever. And those guys high five each other. 
Yeah, that's that, that's absolutely insane. And also too, it's like the the Boston bombing uh, wasn't. I think it was. I read a piece a, a little while ago that said that the Boston bom- the Boston FBI office was uh, had gotten a tip about the uh, the brothers that that carried out the bombing, but they were so busy chasing down and entrapping fake terrorists, they didn't have any time to follow up on it. So I did a, a lot on the Boston marathon bombing and it goes way i'll just tell you one thing that those guys (laughs) were the older brother was in a cia like outpost training thing over there and he was really being his his uncle sarney Mm -hmm. his uncle sarney was living he was married to the daughter samantha fuller the daughter of Graham Fuller, who was the CIA chief of Afghanistan. And Uncle Sarney was living in Graham Fuller's house with Samantha Fuller, running a a U.S. aid outfit, which is a CIA front. Oh, yeah. And there's a quote by Graham Fuller that says, we are going to use radical Islam to unseat or to encroach on, I guess, Western China or something like that, or Central Asia, just like we did in the Middle East. And he was, and he likes actually identified, I think, Dagestan as a place to go into. And these guys were from Dagestan, if you'll remember correctly. Yeah. They were in there trying to radicalize imams and stuff. And then Russia, I believe, sent the CIA or the FBI or whatever a letter saying, hey, get your freaking spy out of our territories, trying to radicalize Islam. And then when they realize, I think, this is pure speculation on my part, but once this, these guys cover it was blown, they they got blown up. But they were on the CIA watch list. They were lived a mile from the thing. That whole story is really fishy. Yeah, that's that's crazy. So It's great. I mean, it's just that Graham Fuller's son-in-law was their <laughs> uncle. You know what I mean? He was the CIA guy in Afghanistan. (laughs) Didn't he write a book too? (laughs) Oh yeah. Graham Fuller. He did write a book. Yeah. I can't remember what it was called, but you know what else is funny about that too, is that, um, like a lot of the stands, like in the steps, they are actually having problems with Islamist, uh, fighters and radical elements. Now, like the Uyghurs, of course, is that's Mm -hmm. a story that's old, you know, really old now is, is, is that, uh, I think it was, there was Uyghurs um, fought, uh, training in Syria, tra- uh, training camps that were that were either ran or no, sorry, it was Uyghur fighters going uh, training in Afghanistan to go to Syria to fight with a lot of the more quote unquote moderate rebels as they had now. But wow, it's, yeah, it's kind I didn't of hear that. Yeah, I, I got to double check on the the locations, but um, the CIA has had like involvement with the Uyghurs for quite a while. I well, think it goes back all the way to this is. This is what I was saying about like the Google thing and all that. And mm-hmm. I, I, I was referring actually to something I saw from DARPA saying that they go into foreign countries and and enhance dysfunctional subcultures. Oh, mimetic warfare. Yes, exactly. And that's what they do. And that's and so when I say like these guys are it's the CIA, real people are getting killed and radicalized and hurt and everything. But when you they're doing it on purpose. They know how to do it. Look at what they do here. And I'm not saying about like terrorism here. I'm saying about like schooling. <laughs> like yeah. <how> they, <laughs> yeah, they make our daughters stupid 
and it's like on purpose, <laughs> you know? And you just look at these years and be like, you have your bra needs to be smaller than your shirt. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, no, that's uh, oh, crude, but I'm just saying that that's what you you see this stuff. They're doing that to us because they do not screen YouTube. They'll take out my show off of YouTube, my show, which is on terrestrial radio, has gotten removed from YouTube. And my kids get stuff with suicide pop-ups in the middle, SpongeBob and suicide themes. Oh, I know. Absolutely. Um, And yeah, uh, feel free to swear on this channel, Monica. Don't worry about that. But anyway, not like, okay, so my son's 10 years old. And he gets on YouTube and even on, and I was actually, I was thinking about this today because I heard you talk about the well, this a while ago is that the stuff that he sees on YouTube kids, which is supposed to be kind of curated and collected just uh -huh. for children oh, yeah. mm -hmm. is all kinds of extremely inappropriate stuff to the really? point Oh yeah. Yeah. Because YouTube kids is for like little kids. So I can't, I have a son with down syndrome who's 17 mm -hmm. and he, he won't watch that kid stuff. But, but there's no 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 other way to screen at all. There's like a safety nope. button, which he can turn on and off. Right. That's it. And so, yeah. I, but I figured the kid stuff at least, was, I didn't even have firsthand experience with the actual kid stuff. Wow. Yeah, there's, there's, and then, so, but he's older now. So he's, he's gone, he's gone on to the full YouTube, which is, which is just the wild west for a, a child that oh, age, absolutely. of course. And know. it's not, it's not even anarchy, which would be fine. <laughs> right. It would be fine if it was anarchy. It's deliberately enhancing dysfunctional subcultures. Yes, yes. Oh, there's, it's just, and everything he likes is stuff that I just absolutely do not want him to watch at all. And then he's got to sneak around and do it behind my back. And it just creates this whole yeah. issue. Yeah, and there's hardly any way around it. And I'll tell you something right. to watch out for. What you're going to see is, and I've seen this, it's funny because my son who has Down syndrome, he's like this, he's like this litmus test. He's just like a way to, he doesn't understand bullshit. So <laughs> he just tells you what he's seeing. And he's like, oh my gosh, mom, I have 15 mental illnesses. Mike, okay, <laughs> what are your mental illnesses? And he's like, well, I have ADHD, I have schizophrenia, I have OCD, I have anorexia. The kid's five, five and 180 pounds. He does not have anorexia. <laughs> but he's just like, I worry about my body. It's like, okay. Oh, this poor kid. I know, I know, I know. No, it's so, it's such a bummer. I mean, this is a kid who asked for Zootopia shaving cream for Christmas. I mean, you know, <laughs> you're like this, whatever world he's living in, I just, I don't, I want to help him through it. But Absolutely. I, just, I love him and he's sweet, but that kind of stuff is, uh, so, so watch out for both screen induced psychosis. So when you oh, give yeah. the kid a phone and then try to take the phone away, he will throw himself against your bedroom door until he like breaks a bone. Mm -hmm. And then the <laughs> other thing is screen induced hypochondria. So they're going to think that they have some uh, physical illness, but really it's the mental illness. And I, I wouldn't even know it except for my son is such a parrot from the themes that come over and over in his head. Like, they just drill this stuff and and he's such a hard learner that he only can regurgitate the thing the underlying theme it's kind of amazing oh man that is that is absolutely terrifying i just <laughs> but you'll see that in a couple of years you'll be like monica said that like you definitely don't have ocd <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that there's nothing you can do just don't just have a cocktail because i don't think right. there's any way to fix it <laughs> no and that's it is a screen i mean we already cracked pandora's box on that because we got him we got him an ipad um like a year ago and we're already seeing the screen induced psychosis because i really try to get him to you know go outside and go play and be a normal kid like when i was a kid but 
That's just I the just, problem. It's hopeless. I feel exactly. So, I, I feel so depressed about it. Yeah. And I, that's that raises real questions about. So people that are like you know my generation or above, like we kind of understand how to navigate the digital world because we didn't grow up with it, and especially like things that we kind of talk about and and believe in, like liberty and uh, you know. I was just trying to think of another good example, but Liberty is the best good one or the best one I can think of because when you have people that are just plugged in to these devices all the time, well, how much interaction with the outside world are they having? Yeah. Like any? So I it's mean, so, it's a very artificial world. Exactly. It's easy That's to, to get to. to these kids. And and there is no outside world anymore, actually. So like even if you sent them out on their bikes, there's nobody else out there. They're on their phones too. And so that's why I didn't like not have them do it at all. Because if you, like I grew up the youngest of nine and my dad was a truck driver. So like I did not have anything, any Mm -hmm. extra resources. I wasn't hungry or anything. Well, I was hungry. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't, I wasn't malnourished. Right. I just, uh, whatever. I had no luxuries. And when, so when, yeah, really. So when like my, my husband's, around my age and he knows like all the albums, the songs, the artists of everything. I'm like, Hey, I had a clock radio. And unless <laughs> they said who was singing the song, you know, I didn't, I still to this day don't know who's who. Yes. So, and it stinks. I hate it. And I was like culturally backward. And I, so with my kids, I didn't want, I could deprive them of all that, but I feel like I'm not sure I'm the parent to compensate for culturally excluded kids. Right. I just, I, gotcha. I don't know how to do that. I kind of feel like I have to help shepherd them through this the best I can, because this is the world they're living in. These are the references they have. I think these are, may be the tools they're going to have to use to be successful, economically successful, and maybe socially success, successful in the world. And I mean, I could take my stand and and see if I can't get myself a piece of land and <laughs> grow some potatoes, but I'm not there yet. No, I got you. And actually that's a that's a that's a good segue to to what I was uh thinking about. So about this response act. So the other thing that um we, like circling back a minute ago, the other thing we were talking about is some of the things that have been implemented already. One of them is uh, school surveillance, right? So private-public partnership, a lot of these uh, private companies developing tools and software for school administrators to use to track children's online activity. Yep. And one of the things, and this is what made me remind you, is preparing your kids to be adults. Um, one of the things that uh, I think it was Cornyn's office said or maybe it was a school administrator, they talk about, um, okay, here it is. Some proponents of school uh, monitoring say that technology is part of educating today's students and how to be good digital citizens, and that monitoring in school helps train students for constant surveillance after they graduate. Taking oh, my ad- God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. What the hell? So taking that's, ad- that's one of the things I have as like the three things that terrify me about this. What, living in the panopticon? Yes, it's it's it that is that will make you psychotic. Oh yeah. Seriously, absolutely. like you can't we can talk about that in a sec. So finish what you're doing. Oh uh, was uh, we'll the only thing I that. said was uh take an adult in the workplace. You can't type anything you want into your work email. It's being looked at, said Bill McCullough, a gaggle that's the company, gaggle spokesperson said, We're preparing kids to become successful adults. By uh. by keeping that well, this is this 
on the one hand, I mean, I do want my kids to be ultra paranoid about what they express digitally. Yes. But I don't want them. I've seen this in in reality, in my personal experience. It is absolutely true. I've seen this happen to kids. They that message gets through to them deeply because the panopticon is isn't actually being watched all the time. The right. panopticon is thinking you're watched all the time. Yeah. Because there might not be anyone in the watchtower and the person every once in a while they come by, the guards come by and they take somebody out of a cell and they chop his head off for everyone to see. There may be no connection whatsoever between that guy. They just probably randomly pick people, you know, yeah. like, I mean, mm -hmm. this isn't a real place, but I'm just saying that this <laughs> is the theory. Yeah. So, so the kids get it in their heads that, that they, they, they're, when they're young enough, they don't understand the difference between what's happening digitally and what's like literally in their own minds. Mm -hmm. So if they get in trouble for something they they tweeted or they don't tweet, but texted or wrote whatever, they don't really remember expressing it. So they're not sure if if they if they actually said it. Like, how does this guy know oh, that man. I made that joke? Like, I thought I said it to my friend, but. You know what I mean? They just can't yeah. remember because it just becomes an extension of themselves. And then they have to curb their thoughts. And there's two big problems with curbing your thoughts. One is you will never know the truth. Right. And you'll never know new truth. And you will never be able to resist personally or, or in cooperation with other people. So you're yeah. never going to be able to exercise your Fourth Amendment rights if you can't even think. And you certainly can't exercise your Fourth Amendment rights, which which I think the basis of that was to be able to coordinate a revolution against tyranny. <laughs> You're certainly not going to be able to coordinate with anybody. But I think that you just have to stay away from those thoughts. I mean, my kids, they, they'll say, I don't want to know that truth because I will be penalized for it. Oh, when you're talking to them? My kid. When I'm so, like, if I say something about, like, I'm just like, hey, man, why are people so bent out of shape about other people's choices for vaccines? Like, if you want vaccine, the, my kids are vaccinated mm -hmm. and they're, they haven't gotten any of those illnesses because they're vaccinated or right. maybe not. I really don't know how vaccines work. <laughs> I didn't think about it. I just like, okay, fine, whatever. Right. Slice my baby's arm open and put pathogenic DNA in it. It's fine. <laughs> so, um, but they, but they're like, Oh, you're a Karen. You're a Karen. I guess a Karen is a mom who like is an anti-vaxxer or Oh, that's a new one on uh, me. You know, yeah, a Karen is is like a paranoid mom who like goes to alternative sources for health information and stuff <laughs> like that. And I'm like, Karen's probably right most of the time, just so you know. Like, yeah, it's like, but and I try to explain, it's like, yeah, you and, and Alex Jones thinks frogs are gay. I'm like, hey, man, <laughs> I think frogs are gay. <laughs> no, but my, my point was just that, that they, what they do is they, they just make it sound crazy, but there is crazy stuff in the water. Like, where do you think Prozac goes and Teflon and everything that gets into the water supply? It's still in the yeah, water. Sure it's is. in the water. They don't have like microfilaments at the sewage plant. It's in the water. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> but I, I know I shouldn't even like go to these places. Uh, no, that was great. Wait, so you got me late. <laughs> so, but oh man, so yeah that that is uh, that is really something that that what your what your kids hit on there is that they would they would rather fit in with everybody, and that's part of like being a teenager, of course. But like they rather fit in than than know like a you know like a profound truth. And I think that persists into adulthood too for a lot of people. Well, I frankly, I'm happy that they have those survival instincts. Yeah. And I and I'm confident there are two red letter moments I think for the awakening of anyone where truth has been planted deep inside their brains. One is regarding the state when they get their first paycheck and mm-hmm. they realize that it does not equal hours worked times dollars per hour. <laughs> <laughs> when they that? see that and they're like times 0.5 you know, they're like, what? <laughs> so that moment is when they become libertarians. And then when they have their first child is when they become you know, ethical, moral, you know, courageous. Almost definitely. You know, that's my hope anyway. And, and you know what? If they, if they don't get there, then all of my work has been completely wasted and I'll be totally bitter because <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, dude, even, even when they use bad manners, I'm like, anyone can create an animal. I'm putting all my effort into this right now. Like, come on, <laughs> sit up straight. <laughs> so I just, anyway, so I'm trying my best to, I don't need the results right now, but I do have my fingers crossed that when the rubber hits the road, those little, the voice of mom will come percolating up and they're like, oh yeah, your shirt needs to fit over your belly button. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I I mean I I get it. You know, you do you do all that you you do all that you can for uh your kids and I know like it sounds like but that's really all you can do and this I'm I've been going through this thing right now cuz I come from like a pretty long line of military service and I am uh I am anti-war first, libertarian second. And my son right now has been uh being egged on by my dad of course, who is a uh, long-term marine. Uh he wants to be a soldier, so he'll he's got his little utilities he dresses up in, and he'll and I said this on the last show. He'll die for cover behind the couch, and he's got you know like a little toy airsoft <laughs> rifle. And, That's awesome, right? It'd be super cute if I wasn't still drinking the Kool Aid, but it's like you know I like my I see my dad encouraging. I just want to strangle him. It's like, can you keep, please give this kid if he's gonna go to the military? Can you please let him go and eyes open? Um, oh yeah, no, I feel like just that he's moving around and not doing not just killing people with his iPad. Right. Well, let's that combine those two. That was the only two. thing. I was like, I'm glad the kid actually can use his arms and legs. Like, that's good. That's, that's true. A start. But why is your dad <laughs> still smoking the Kool Aid? Oh, he's yeah. I I cannot. Uh, I I gave up on all that. I can't even talk to him about my time in Iraq. I mean, honestly, it's just wow. it's just so the- so many people. I was just thinking that today. So many people are true believers who really should know better, and that is mm-hmm. why the whole conspiracy theory thing. They're like, how could anyone keep that a secret? It's like, hey, man, it doesn't take much. People no. want want to not know that stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they want to not know. They want to put the best face on it. Because imagine the tragedy of your life. You know, it's bad enough that my daughter wears belly shirts. But when the tragedy of your life, when you spent 20 years putting your life on the line or 40 or however many is the most. Mm-hmm. And you and you look at the that what you did that you you may even have killed people for for a cause that was a deception. Yep. So you don't have the moral responsibility for that, but you do start having the moral responsibility when you allow yourself to kind of butt up against that ethical glass ceiling where you're like, you can't face the truth 
because that would be so painful. And, and the truth may well be that your life's work was serving a false cause. And oh, I yeah. think that's unbearable. You know, I just, I, I'm going to be very upset with my kids if they turn out bad. Like that's nothing compared to, <laughs> right? Spending your whole life. Yeah, I mean, it's such a bitter pill to swallow for most people. It takes some, it takes some real introspection to to do it. I mean, also there's like a sunk cost fallacy too, and I just see it. I mean, I see it with my like friends, like guys I know that I, I was in the military with that are still kind of buying into all the same BS years and years. And I mean, I mean, I've been out, I've been out for geez, like almost ten years at this point. So, um, and they they still kind of buying the same thing, and it's it's a uh, I, I kind of, you know, like get a little Socratic question like, hey, man, you know, does it make any sense that, well, we we went to Iraq and we did all this peacekeeping and security operations and to give the Iraqis democracy and now they have uh, ISIS. So like, what's up with that? Isn't that kind of crazy? <laughs> They're like, oh, that's because we left. And it's like, ah, dude, forget it. Yeah. But what about <laughs> that that uh, Kelly guy? Did you ever read that that leaked document from the Defense Intelligence Agency that I think it was Kelly ran it and said that... ISIS is exactly what we want to well, as an excuse to invade Syria. Wasn't that Mike Flynn? Oh, Mike Flynn. That's who I was. Sorry, sorry. Yes, I, knew I, I knew I was getting it wrong. It was Mike Flynn. Yes, absolutely right. Well, I was a former, former general in the Trump administration, so definitely the same wheelhouse. But yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, I just, you got to think back, to, you got to think all the way back to, uh, now I'm blanking on the dude's name, um, Seven Country, Seven Years, Wesley Clark. Oh, Wesley Clark, yeah. Yes. It all starts yes. there. But you saying it's in the military. I had the same problem. I was an investment banker. I went to Ivy League schools. And then I got out and I, my son, my first son was born with Down syndrome. And I just never went back to work. And it's been mm -hmm. fine. But like I'm a hyper-educated soccer mom. And I just <laughs> had a lot of time. And my husband finds it interesting. To, he just doesn't find anything. I don't know what he finds interesting. But he, <laughs> he has no... No, he doesn't set any parameters on what I do or how I do it. And right. I had this unusual opportunity to just explore thoughts without consequence. So like, I don't have to go to, when I used to go to work, I was such, I was always a hardcore libertarian. I would read the Wall Street Journal. I'd be like, yeah, that's a socialist rag. It was like, <laughs> Wall Street Journal? <laughs> like, I can't even read that crap. <laughs> it was just like, so consequently, I was rather ignorant of the current events of the day because I really just repulsed me. So there was probably, people would make fun of me, whatever. So there was some pushback there. But then I got, I got to where I got to be, I was out, I could really think it through. And then, oh, when the scales fell off my eyes, that was a painful experience. It still hurts. My eyes are still hurting. I wish I could glue them back on, but I can't. <laughs> so when I run into my old friends or old coworkers, I mean, one of them put it very bluntly. I was like, hey, man, this system's completely rigged and screwed up and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, dude, it's working for me. I put my life into it. I work hard. I make a lot of money. That seems fair. I'm not turning over the apple cart now. So it happens in every every walk of life. That's why mm -hmm. I think the young people may be easier to tap into for better or for worse yeah. because they really don't have that much to lose. That's why you get the, these, these Ron Paul supporters in 2012 were colleges. They were young kids who were like, yeah, man, let's, let's, uh, let's burn these dollars, you know? <laughs> and then, but you also have the pussy hats, uh, you know, the kids running around like Trump's a traitor. Let's have socialism. Right. And I, you know, they can go either way because they really are in, entrenched. They don't have their roots put down yet. But, but if they actually had a lot of 
personal property, I think they would they would start to realize that that's not going to work if other people don't have it and it's share everything. Yeah, that's that's something about that. It's always kind of ironic too when you see these kind of like uh, uh what's a dude? The dude is a billionaire um who got into the Democratic race for a little while. I can't even remember his name now. Starbucks guy, whatever his name was. Oh, Schwartz. Yeah, yeah, pushing pushing like extremely socialist policies. It's uh I, I just that's such a strange mindset to me. Where it's like I have all this money, but I need the force of government to make me give it away to somebody. Well, I cracked the code on that. My father oh, always puzzled, always puzzled over that. I don't understand it. How can that guy be a Democrat? You know? <laughs> and then I went to Harvard and I roomed with somebody who went to Yale and transferred to Harvard, was like the oldest money in the world. And I realized it was like this epiphany. I, I went to community college and then transferred to Harvard. So like the problem okay. I had at, at, as a banker, being a libertarian, not reading the Wall Street Journal, you could just imagine I was a high school dropout. I was a waitress. I went to community college and I pop up at Harvard as a junior. <laughs> and they just like put me in this rooming situation. It was really crazy. So I didn't know what was going on, but I just remember like I discovered two things. Being... Upper class doesn't mean being classy. Yeah. <laughs> so like these people are like, first of all, like trash talking. And then half of them are like, oh, my dad's a drunk. He hates my mom. He never talks to me. And I'm like, wow, my dad loves me. <laughs> like, I just couldn't, you know, I was like, this is amazing. So, I mean, and he was a tough customer, my dad. I'm not, he was in the Navy. He was a butcher. He was a truck driver. He's a motorcycle. You know, he's a Harley guy. Like, but there, there was always like a level of honesty and integrity in the household that was, there was just no facade inside. And that's why I was like, okay, so you guys look classy, but really you're not very nice to each other sometimes. That's maybe a generalization. I shouldn't, uh, maybe that's rude, but I noticed that. And then the other thing was that they aren't Democrats because they believe in it. You know, they're, or they're not Republicans because they believe in it. They're not politicians because they believe in the ideology. Because there they were these, the children of politicians who I knew. So they, it had nothing to do with anything, but for the most part, from what I could tell, but for what, what was going to work for them personally, ah, okay. they were working it. So with the Democrats, this is, so there's this statistics, statistic you might have come across where, Republicans, like blue state, I hate it when they call Republican states red states. Like CNN right. flipped that and Fox bought it. Well, should be the <laughs> Democrats are red. But okay, so the Republicans, the red states, like poorer people are Republicans and richer people are Democrats. And like people just scratch their head over that. And my answer is that the Democrats, the people get richer by getting outsized profits that are generated by government ah. privilege. You know, they award privilege. Mm -hmm. If you read Albert J. Nock, Enemy of the State, he says yes. it's just government is, government is one thing, but the state, government is valid. But the state, and an anarcho-capitalist would think that too, gover governing is like a dad right. or a tribal elder or, or a council of a voluntary association. But the state will is there simply to award privileges to one person or group at the expense of another person or group. And that actually is the definition of the political means of gain is, oh, yeah. that is the opposite of the economic means of gain. So the Democrats are political animals and they see it as a way to, to make or keep their 
you know, great, greater wealth. That's interesting. Makes perfect sense. I, I, mean, I think that's what I mean. I don't think they're ideologues, and I don't think the Koch brothers no. are ideologues. No, I mean, there's certainly a. I think that, also number one, like there's one degree of difference between these two ideologies in the first place, and then number two is <laughs> is that there's. Yeah, I don't see that. Like, they, there's that whole thing with the Koch brothers and was Soros and their uh, Quincy Institute, which just seems extremely. Yeah, what was that? I remember that. Was that a media thing? What was, was a that? Think tank that they were getting ready to uh, yeah. kind of throw down on. It was called the Quincy Institute, and it's supposed to be for a non-interventionist foreign policy. <laughs> George Soros. <laughs> yeah, come on, George now. Soros, who <laughs> who openly advocated those color revolutions. Aren't they kind of his thing? Yeah. Yeah. He was tied up in all that too. <laughs> and he's had a ton of involvement in Ukraine, of course, too. Yes, for sure. Uh, which, oh yeah, that's a whole, <laughs> whole other can of worms. So yeah, like about, about the whole response acting, um, we said, we, so we went over uh, school surveillance. We went over the ISPs, private public partnership, you know, the other thing was uh, expediting the death penalty for terrorist mass violence. Oh, I can't stand that. That's in the oh, no. domestic terrorism bill by McSally also. Yes. And Barr champions that too. And yes. I just, I w couldn't understand why, but the re what I think it is, it goes to this plea bargaining crisis we have. It is mm -hmm. damn near negates the Sixth Amendment, I guess it is. And in the fifth. some... The, uh, yeah, I normally know them right, right off the bat, but <laughs> so here's the thing. There's like, there's a quote, I don't know if it was Winston Churchill or one of those guys. And they said that the, or maybe it was one of our founders that the, no, it was an English guy, the critical, the most important, right. The right that kind of separates man from beast is jury is a trial by peers. Theophilus Parsons, yes. Theophilus Parsons. Oh, you actually. know who said it? Yes, Theophilus who Parsons. Who said it? Theophilus Parsons was a guy. I don't know who Theophilus Parsons is. He was a Philadelphia lawyer that was originally from Britain. He was here like in the colonies in the early before. Come on, I was pretty good. British founder, I don't know. Hey, I'll give it to you. <laughs> I say you had it. <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, but feeling around in the dark, I did, I did sense a few objects there. The founding and the English. Yes, and it's true. And this, yeah, so the sixth is the right to a speedy and public trial. And you're saying... The fifth is deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process. Yeah, yeah. due process. And really, so, the way yeah. yeah, the way plea bargains are done, I totally agree with you, is it's a it's a violation of due process because, I mean, I know this firsthand. The way that these things work is that the state will – you'll get arrested for something. And then they'll pile on a ton of charges that they could never, ever get uh, you convicted on in open right. court. Like I was facing 15 years when I got arrested for a couple controlled buys of a, uh, you know, a schedule two substance and small amounts too. And, um, what happens then is that number one, you can't make bail. So you're sitting in County jail, which sucks. And then, uh, number two is that they, they come down on you and they'll, you know, sit you in a room and say, Oh, you're going to do 15 years in prison if you don't sign this piece of paper right now. But if you sign this piece of paper, we'll only give you three years. So, I mean, that's a, difficult gamble for most people. Yeah. To and make. you would have taken the 15 if the death penalty was on that piece of paper. Exactly. So that's the yeah, problem. It really is. <clears throat> and also too, I mean, we know how much, how bad the government is at, at doing anything it does. And especially when it comes to death penalty cases, I mean, you look at the innocence project and there's something it's like in the four hundreds now of people they've exonerated through DNA evidence. 
I, I did. I, I, I don't actually have a problem with the death penalty from a, an abstract moral point of view. Right. But the government can't be trusted no. both from competence and motivation. So they might want to get rid of you or just want to rack up convictions yep. or they can be incompetent. Either one. I actually think it's the former more than the latter. And you can actually see what you're describing working in real time, playing out on the news when when you see how Lori Lachlan's insistence on exercising her right to trial oh, yeah. is being met with increasing threats. I mean, at first it was... This is, I don't even know if it was a crime. Then it was 18 months, and now it's 40 years. Yeah, that they're escalated seeing, They're threatening her with 40 years, and you can just see it on the headlines, how they're, they're responding to her. And I think, I know, since you listen to my show, you know what I think about Lori Lachlan, <laughs> but I think they know she's innocent, and they, they didn't take Phil Mickelson down, they didn't take Joe Montana down, right. and they didn't have to take her down, because let's say those guys are innocent. I she it looks crystal clear to me she was scammed out of a lot of money that she thought she was giving to a charity. You know, that's what's so tragic about that whole situation is that the guy that actually should be doing the time that should be charged is working with the government. Right, Singer. And that's a sick thing. And I bet that happens nine out of ten times. The more guilty person is the one who's gonna roll and the other guys go up just so these people can put notches in their belts. But oh, I actually certainly. think the Lori Lachlan thing is a political persecution because they do not want conservative Christians or or even just people who who have a morality above yep. the almighty buck or fame and fortune to be to to have position to have any kind of influence and I think that's why that's actually why I started investigating her case I had no idea whether she's innocent or guilty but Binkley said to me oh you know she's like a conservative Christian I said I was why was she, what and she's like this huge scammer for material you know what i mean i was like right. either she's full of it as a moral person or she didn't do this and i've i concluded that she didn't do it pretty quickly just by reading the fbi affidavit <laughs> i mean that's the crazy part that's why i don't believe them oh yeah absolutely and if you look at the way in her in that cases too like everybody else that has been been um had their cases adjudicated has uh that one number one they all folded pretty quickly and the number two is that they uh the amount of time was was it Felicity Huffman? I think was one yeah. of them. I Eleven had, I, days. Yeah, versus forty years for the right. same. And Felicity crime? Huffman did something wrong. Right. Felicity Huffman did something wrong. She knew that she was doing something wrong. Lori Lachlan was scammed top to bottom. They knew the athletic director at that school. They that their daughter was a YouTube star, and USC has a film school. There is no way. Right. You know, that girl wasn't getting in. <laughs> but you have to bow down before the state. I mean, that's... Well, they, these people were... Yeah, no, it's sick. And that's why the plea... But that comes back to the plea bargaining thing. When you have 95 or some estimates are 98% at the state and federal level of convictions being gotten by plea bargains, that pretty much says anyone they want to put in jail, they can put in jail and you are going to have no recourse. You must work out a deal with them, which means yep. they can get anyone they want. And they're so, how many, I think there's like millions of pages, something crazy like that, million, many, 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 thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of laws. Right. So every, any, everyone does something. Everyone Absolutely. does something. Yeah. Even if you're a moral person, you are going to break a law that could put you in jail. I'm not saying, I'm saying a moral person because they have these crimes that are 
crimes because they're prohibited, not because they're inherently wrong. It is not wrong for for anyone to smoke pot who wants to. Yeah. It's not wrong. There's no, nothing not. wrong with that. I gave you a grab the ground. That's why the thing that you were saying about drug rights and gun rights being inversely correlated kind of tweaks me. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, because gun guys will go to the mat saying, This is my God given right. Right. But you don't have like gun trees. I get it. Like I like <laughs> I, I wish everybody had a gun. But I but you don't they, they you you had to intervene. God did not give you that. God gave you a pot plant. Absolutely. I mean, he gave it. It's growing in your backyard. It takes a lot to keep it from growing in your backyard, actually. Yeah. They, if you ever read the stories of how hard it was to eradicate hemp and marijuana and stuff of America, it's like killing bison. It's like just cover as far as the eye could see. It took the military. All they could see. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. tell me. They had uh, industrial hemp, like the um, all over the Midwest. They had uh, hemp that just grew in culverts and ditches and whatnot. And it, they took National Guard troops in quite a few different states, and they took them out and they just they just burned a huge section, huge section of culverts alongside the road. Because um, they went hemp, all the way, they yeah. went all the way down to hemp. Like that, there was a um, you know industrial hemp. There was that whole thing with Anslinger in the '30s and the Marijuana Tax Act. Uh, which was sub- not supposed to prohibit growing hemp for industrial uses, and uh, they ended but up. But hemp was a competitor. I know alcohol prohibition. There is some suggestion that prohibition was instituted to keep. I think it was Henry Ford's alcohol ethyl alcohol, whatever alcohol engine. Yeah, ethanol from ethanol from competing with oil, gasoline. I'd buy that. I think I think Henry Ford, they said, well, how are you going to fuel these things? And he said, look, there it is. And it was like a cornfield. So <laughs> yeah. that John D. Rockefeller was behind prohibition. I think that's in evidence. So mm-hmm. it might stand to reason. But I think hemp was competing with some something else. Uh, nylon, DuPont. That's what it was. There you go. That's also chemical, right? That's a oil byproduct. Yeah. Yeah, nylon was the big competitor for industrial fabrics, and also hemp's like another thing is that hemp was used to make. Um, and there's a, here's a here's a fun fact for you. So hemp was used to make uh, all kinds of other things too, like uh, parachute rigging and um, like lubricants for engine uh, engines for airplanes and whatnot. And when they had they had just gotten like through eradicating all the hemp, and then World War II hit, and they had to pay they had to pay farmers subsidies to get them to grow hemp to to use them for you know military machinery. Like use the hemp products. <laughs> so like, they had to pay them what to say that again. They had to pay the hemp farmers uh, subsidies in order to get them to grow hemp again because they oh needed it. God. Yeah, for World War Two, for uh, <laughs> yeah, airplane airplane lubricant, parachute rigging, stuff like that. And it's like, oh man, that's great. You know, it's government. Yeah, for that's you. like the sugar thing. They pay them not to grow. Yeah, sugar so that we use corn syrup, which you don't want to go down that. Right. <laughs> that should that should be used. To fuel your engines, not to fuel your body. Absolutely. But like, yeah, so like get back on target. The, that's what <laughs> sorry, it, man. I'm no, sorry. It's all, trust We're me. Ranging. It's, fine. it's fine, Mark. It's all good. It's definitely bringing some value to the show. Well, okay. So like the thing about guns and drugs, with, with the, the thing that absolutely, and I'm sure you get it too, just try all the time, just drives me absolutely bonkers is that the, the same argument that you use against prohibition on drugs about why it doesn't work are the exact same arguments that people would use about prohibition of guns. And hey, I'm a libertarian. I don't want prohibitions on anything. Yeah. But it's it's almost like there's this thing where it's like you got to pick a side. You can have pot or I you know, can have guns. It's weird. Right. 
it's weird because the thing about guns and drugs that that uh, annoy me that the gun rights advocates will say they don't want drugs yeah. because it's bad for society. <laughs> it's like, but that's what people are saying about the guns. Yeah. They're like, but it's my individual right. It's like, it's my individual right to get high. And they're exactly. getting high. It's just they're getting high on alcohol instead right. of or prescription or prescription pills. The difference is their drug dealer Ugh. wears a white coat, you know, so that's the uh, difference there. But they're but, cutting out, they're they're suppressing that and I think intentionally to generate black market and heroin because when they started legalizing pot, 70% of the black ops money went away. Almost certainly that. Yeah, I could I could definitely see that. But what else is frustrating too is that if we would all the reason that we got to this place where we are right now, where we're talking about confiscation of you know classes of weapons, full full stop, is because instead of us all looking around and saying, okay, well our enemy is the people in the two hundred two area code. They're the ones that want to take stuff away from us. So why didn't I say that you can have what you want and I can have what I want, and while we, you know, everything's fine. Instead, no. Uh, when these groups of people. Uh, get a hold of the state power, they use it to impose their way of life on each other. And it's just absolutely maddening. It goes all the way to the top. And that's the same thing for the the federal government. Now people don't like Trump. So why not restore the 10th Amendment? Why not go back? And there is no state. I think like every state in the union is bigger than a country somewhere. Yeah. So it doesn't, you don't need 330 million people to to contribute to a welfare state to make it work. You want welfare? Move to California. I mean, right. California is a perfect place. Do it. Go for it. It doesn't matter. But they want they and, and then and you can see how hard to sell it is, especially with guns. Oh, yeah. When because then you'll see these like weird events, shooting events where they'll emphasize they brought this gun from out of state and then they'll say your guns are are coming to my town and that's why I have to control your laws. That sounds like an intentionally inserted uh, something to serve a policy goal. Yeah, uh, that's those those shooting events are absolutely riddled with policy stuff. I mean, just ready to go to the presses the second they can fill in the blanks. Oh uh, yeah, it's it's I I don't watch them anymore just just out of the <laughs> <laughs> just to save my sanity uh because like we like with this uh with this response act man this is this is what we're getting this is here now like we were talking about earlier this is uh all stuff that was has been pushed for at least several years at least since 20 what 2012 2013 something like yes. that yes yeah sandy hook was what absolutely launched basically every one of these initiatives i didn't do research on that but you had i think you found the same thing i did which is I don't know how you came upon it, but I was just trying to research these initiatives in the here and now. And I was getting search returns, which you don't usually get from that old anymore, but they were coming up from the Obama era right after yeah. Sandy Hook. Yeah. Um, I had this thing on Mint Press News, which is actually pretty good usually. I, I know. I, I just noticed that, that Whitney Webb wrote. Yeah. Did you, are you talking about the bar thing? She, she's written a few great things on there. Um, that's actually, yeah, that is one of them that I, I did read earlier this week. But there was a thing on Mint Press about uh, school surveillance is what it was. And that's where I got some of that we talked hmm. about earlier. I can, I'll send you a link when we're done yeah. if you want. But 
Uh, you know, I was just I've just been reading, going down the list on John Cornyn's website about all the things that this mission or the Response Act, the the VA Mission Act is another one for another day. But, oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah the, Send me that um, link too. Sure. <laughs> but the uh, the this is just stuff that's off John Cornyn's website about what he's saying this bill is going to do, and then there's this whole list of stuff uh, about mental health, um, which of course that's and that's another thing about this whole. Uh, Thing, which I mean, you you introduced to me the Hegelian dialectic, which is something I never even heard of before. The you know, problem, reaction, solution, which is just man, it's like you see it everywhere now. Yeah, I'm everywhere. Not- no, and I say it all the time. I mean, it's like a broken record. It's it's getting boring, but I'm like they're just <laughs> messing with you. Don't you see what's going to happen next? People are like, wow, you really were ahead of that story. I'm like, I could just see it coming. It's always the same. It's the same story every time. Absolutely. Uh, like that whole thing about school surveillance is that that that. Uh, excerpt of the article where um, it was talking about uh, you know kids being prepared to be adults and whatnot. There is a thing before that uh, same excerpt of another article that said uh, people are generally okay with surveillance. Like that's mu- that's a much easier sell versus uh, you know gun control. And it's just like okay, that's that. <laughs> That's so yeah, wrong. I don't even know where to start. It's the everything. I know where to start. It's I figured it out. It's the everything but approach. Yeah. Everything but. They're going to take away. That's why they. this is the new theme they're generating right now. They're saying Republican. This is you read it over and over again. I know this is what you're talking about, where it will say in the mainstream media, well, red flag laws are a favorite of Republicans who don't want to take that extra step and or who don't want to to get the real solution, which is gun control. So the Republicans are leading the charge on mental health, saying that that's the real problem. So my argument is I realized I was like, they're not taking the guns away. They're not doing it. Why are they not actually doing it yet? And then I realized they're not doing it. They don't want to do it for a really long time. They're going to use this stuff and that tension between left and right who don't want the guns, don't want to take the guns, to keep these crises coming and take away every other right in the Bill of Rights and then some. And then when you're totally neutralized, neutered, yep. totally without power, and unable to use your Fourth Amendment rights, to use any other rights, to organize, to petition, to have free speech, to have thought, none of that. And then they'll just pluck the guns out of your hand like you're, you know, when you're sleeping. Yep. And if it's just you, if you're isolated and cut off from everybody else, you can't resist. I mean, yeah, sure, you can kick over your couch and barricade your windows if they come to take your guns, but that's not really a good solution. (laughs) We're getting so dumb that the way, like, uh, if you ever saw this documentary, it might have been on Alex Jones, where it was these these guys being interviewed after Katrina, and they looked at each other. It was kind of like the Boston Marathon bombing where people, law enforcement, went door to door. Mm Mm-hmm. And these that. guys, these cold, dead hand guys were like, I think we just got our guns took. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it like uh, my hands are not cold or dead, and I don't know what happened, but my guns are gone, and I need them now because there's marauders. You know what I mean? Right, there's, yeah. The law enforcement wasn't there for the riot. I don't know if there were riots, but people were there. Looting. was you couldn't just call 911 if you were in your house. They were yelling at people for staying in their houses, but they wanted to protect their stuff, but they were taking their guns away. Yeah. And they, and the guys were psyoped out of it. You know, they were, they were, they were, ta- they were smooth talks out of it. Like you didn't even know it's like Cosby slipped them a clay, quaalude or something. They just <laughs> didn't know, you know, they didn't know what was happening before they were, they was over. 
I was amazed. I remember they really buried that story too, man. When that happened, I was uh, about Katrina and them se- and them seizing a bunch of people's guns. But yeah, you know what else is I find insanely uh, frustrating. It, it goes back to it. You know, it's obviously it's all connected when we talk about this. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. To where okay, so we have mass surveillance, and the reason we have we we have the Fourth Amendment is so we can actually resist tyranny if it comes to that. Which I'd say we're <clears throat> well past that time, but um, that's that's just it. Is that with the everything but the guns approach means that the the guns that we we do have are essentially useless in a situation like that. And yeah. if if it wasn't such a uh, insidious thing, I might actually admire the genius of it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, the the American government has had really, I'm sure you agree with this. The American government's had two fundamental problems since its inception. One, the people here are armed, and we have a culture in America that is kind of uh, more individualistic than both. It kind of values individual rights more than most. And if you look at history, I mean, you ever read Tragedy and Hope um, by Kara Quigley? Monica? Yes. Well, okay. I, I can't say I read it cover to cover, but well, that's I, a pretty uh, hefty book. <laughs> <laughs> I read the pertinent parts. I think. I hope. Absolutely. Okay. Well, there's this. Okay. So he he talks, did you read it cover to cover? Uh, no, definitely not. I'm I'm just about halfway through, and it's about it's been about a two year attempt to finish it. Because so. I've actually heard that that it's even more interesting, not the popular parts. That it's worth reading cover to cover, actually. Yeah, I can see that. I definitely learned a lot from it. Um, yeah. I think Jay Dyer is a guy who uh, does like some in-depth lectures, and I think he did some. I think you might have to pay for it, but I think he really gets into it. I anyway. That sounds good. You might want. You might need a companion, is what I'm saying. You might need a companion <laughs> to tragedy. And hope. I I would. Yeah, I can. I yeah, I could definitely use one because there's definitely that's part of the reason why it's taking me so long to read it because I have to go and read about uh, Germany before unification. Yeah, or you got to like read that. everything in the footnotes. Like it's like reading 500 books. But anyway, so yeah. yeah really so what is. are you saying about it though? I do okay. Know. So that's all good. So so people, uh, there's this thing um, about it where whenever. People in history have had uh, weapons uh, parity with the gov with the with their government. Mm-hmm. They've uh-huh. been free. So what happens is first um, we had the Iron Age where people were able to make swords and shields and whatnot, and there was parity with the government. And then uh, horses became a thing. And then you had chariots and cavalry, and the government started oppressing people. And then you had knights after that, uh, heavily armored, you know, uh, mounted soldiers that essentially controlled large parts large tracts of land and had, you know, slaves feudalism, of course, because the, the Lord is a knight usually yeah. or has some. Mm-hmm. And then gunpowder, the age of gunpowder came along and people started blowing knights off of uh, horses with uh, arquebuses or other primitive firearms. Mm-hmm. And then we have this parity between the weapons that people have and the weapons the government have, which is the age we're in now. And whenever people have that parity, people are free. But the This other- is in Tragedy and Hope? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's in there. And Boy, then- no wonder they were mad at him. <laughs> they, bro- they broke the molds after they made that. Well, they broke the plates. Go ahead. Keep oh yeah, I know. And uh, now, if you have like the uncensored version, um, they, they what they excise they excise like seven pages out of. it I have or a first like edition. That. I should oh, probably read that one. <laughs> yeah, uh, I have the ebook, and I'm not sure which one it is, but I plan on I plan on going back and reading a few pages that the, you can go get them online. There's a Oh gosh, what's the guy's name? I can't think of it now. That does this. Brett Vinat runs a School Sucks podcast. He has a he has a website, tragedyandhope.com, that uh, 
is all about the book and Carol Quickly's work. And in it, he's got the excerpt of the pages they took out of the censor. Oh, version. really? Yeah. Oh, that's great. I haven't gotten wow. that far yet, but yeah, he's definitely an excellent resource. Dude, you're giving me a lot of homework here. <laughs> well, I don't know if I can handle it. I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> so okay yeah so right but they're not going after the handguns they're right. going after the stuff that gives us parody right exactly and that's that's part of the i mean obviously i think that's the reason why there's such heavy focus on semi-automatic rifles obviously uh nobody cares about handguns that just makes you a target for law enforcement and whatnot totally and but, I, I was saying this uber driver i talked to said that his he said his homeboys in chicago but this was in atlanta so i don't know what ex what qualifies as a homeboy but somebody was close <laughs> enough to to know what was what he said that he had a rocket launcher and my uber driver's like clearly the military is putting those in there like they're not getting them across the border from some from afghanistan the military right. is releasing them why i'd be interested to see what brand they were uh, oh interesting yeah and now they're popping up but the, the uber guy told me a long time ago well, it's that makes sense. Just like uh, I remember, I saw there was a uh, there there's a story not too long ago in our local news about people smuggling guns over the border from the United States to Mexico, and the most popular <clears throat> excuse me the most popular weapon is three eighty, which is the largest caliber pistol you're allowed to own in Mexico by law. And this, is, of course, is a is a state that only has one gun store in the entire country. It's on a military base in Mexico City, um, but the bottom line here is that they had a picture of all these guns that they had seized coming across the border uh in into the in mexico and it was a table full of m16s and m4s there was a saw on there an m60 like you know a medium machine guns general purpose machine guns uh, they had a bunch of 203s which are the grenade launcher the underbarrel ones for the um, m16s and whatnot and i was thinking like same thing like where are these guys getting this hardware from I mean, this is not something you can go down and buy at, you know, Dick's, like sporting goods. Not that they sell yeah, and that, anymore Yeah, and that, I mean, I, it makes me wonder if they're supposed to be made targets now. You know what I mean? Like, what what Maybe. is about to happen? Well, see, here's the thing, is that, because I was trying to think, okay, is this some stock photo where they just use to try to make people go, oh, scary big guns or something like that? Or maybe this is actual evidence of weapons they've seized. There's a couple possibilities, I think, here. Number one would be... Um, theft i guess i mean it's 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 military like weapons especially like crew serve weapons and heavier weapons rocket launchers um at4s machine guns stuff like that that's one of the few things the military actually does a good job keeping track of um everything else they'll just blame you that anything else that's assigned to you it gets lost damage whatever they'll just blame you and make you pay for a third of it uh but as far as like the like the the man portable like heavy hardware is usually you know, they, they keep pretty good track of that stuff. Yeah. So here's the thing is that we got like fast and furious, obviously type operations. And once they release those guns into the wild with these cartels, I mean, these, these cartels are arms dealers too. They buy and sell weapons. Uh, so I don't really have any insight as to the why, but the how, as you're talking, I'm thinking if they were actually, if they, if they don't just walk away by themselves, and these guys have control over it. The story of Robert Oppenheimer, mm -hmm. who worked on the Manhattan Project, people yeah. say he was a traitor and a spy, and he gave nukes to the Russians 
But a deeper reading of that is that the military industrial complex wanted him to give nukes to the Russians so that they could continue on a war footing long after the hot war ended. The Cold War is an invention. And it happened because of Oppenheimer. So maybe they just need this this excuse to militarize the police. I think it's, it could be as simple as that. The foundations of most governments is fear. James Madison said that. Wow. Um, he's absolutely right. That's, I mean, that's what the drug war is all about. That's what the, ma- every, the mass shooting stuff just screams that. I mean, the outsized coverage that these people get. And also, you know what else is interesting too? Okay, so you know the, and I think you guys just did a show on this today about the Ukraine whistleblower that was uh, named but not named. You know that guy? Yes, yes. Okay. Eric Tremelli. Okay. Yes, him. So here's the thing is that the media supposedly was voluntarily withholding his name to protect his identity, right? But they have no problem putting the picture and the life story of every single mass shooter uh, that happens in this country, given other people ideas, I'm sure, and also kind of creating this kind of incentive for people to get uh, to get some type of recognition or something like that. Absolutely. I actually think that there should, I think out of a moral, I'm not saying I want a law against it, but right. I think morally there should be a blackout on suicide reporting. You yeah. never talk about suicide. It's been correlated. I, I know historically it's true. I, and I think that it's even currently true that the more you talk about it, the more it happens. Absolutely. And if they had, if they, or maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but why not be open to that possibility and look into it? But yeah, they they'll say everything. They'll there are other examples of that where if they just kept their mouth shut, but they won't. Yeah, that uh, you know they won't normally keep their mouth shut. There has to be a reason, right? <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, but the sensationalism and also too like along that same line, not to try not to get off topic here, but solitary confinement, suicide watch in prisons, um, often used for punitive measures. Like it'll be used to punish people that, that the people will piss off. Well, it's more generally like people will piss off the CEOs and they'll use solitary confinement slash, oh, they'll say, oh, you're suicidal. So then they'll take you to suicide watch, obviously, which is where you're sitting there wearing the bam, bam suit, like the big, you know, the tear proof smock. And uh, you're under constant observation. The lights are on all the time, so on and so forth. They use that as punishment. What they've actually found is that putting people on suicide watch slash solitary confinement dramatically increases suicide. I completely believe that. I I think I just I think even just talking about it does. I really do. Yeah, um, I really do. And I think there's evidence to support that statistically what you're saying and more broadly. And they but they won't ever consider not not putting that information out there or even just even just hurtful things you know that they that has no news value whatsoever they'll do that all the time embarrass somebody some conservative chick or whatever yeah i mean there's an entire there's an entire news media organization (laughs) just dedicated to that i mean tmz that's like another good example of that type of stuff just the stuff that has no educational intellectual value whatsoever that people just man they eat it up there's, there's something very, I don't know, something very primal about seeing other people get the crap embarrassed out of them. It's yeah, <laughs> no, I hate that. I could never watch that stuff. Jerry Springer, I couldn't oh, even watch awful. Oprah. Yeah. But something you said earlier pertains directly to one thing I noticed about the Barr memo. So you're talking about the Response Act by Cornyn. Yeah. Where he wants to go in there and make mandatory surveillance at schools. Mandatory. Oh, yeah. 
And I just saw an article today from the AJC talking about 13 kids were caught on a Snapchat saying racist things, using the word lynching and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, where did they get that? And and it was crazy right. because I had written in my notes yesterday, and this was a story that came out today, I wrote in my notes in preparation for this yesterday about the bar memo where he said he is using terrorist the stuff we learned in the war on terror oh my to apply goodness. to mass shootings, right? And that is the exact slippery slope that libertarians had to talk about when they were like, yes, Guantanamo does not make sense. So don't do that. Even it doesn't matter if they're foreigners or whatever, don't do it. And, uh, and so I wrote in my notes, like terrorism, the drug war and mass shootings are all these excuses for mass surveillance, pre-crime. What's going to be next? Racism. Is that going to be like the thing that they're allowed to surveil and punish? And that's exactly what happened today. Oh, that's crazy. And I'm guessing that that was from school surveillance. Almost certainly. You know what else is funny is that that same Mint Press article, uh, it had a thing on there that that said that um, one of the school surveillance, I think it was Gaggle, which is one of these companies that provides surveillance. Okay. Yeah. So they, uh, their system, a student emailed a teacher saying that she overheard that two kids were going to go smoke pot in the bathroom. And they, the administrators went and blew down on the kids and sure enough, they're getting ready to light up a joint. And it's just like, Oh my goodness, man. You know, if I would have gotten caught every time I smoked pot at high school, I would have never graduated for sure. I think back (laughs) at at like a couple of times when I really could have gotten in big trouble Oh yeah, and it would have totally derailed my life. And Absolutely. there, I was a good kid. I was just did a couple of stupid things, and that's what and kids do. Fortunately, nothing happened because you have to. You have to, in order to understand how the world works, you need to push boundaries. Kids do it. That's what toddlers do, and then yeah. you'll find out soon enough, Matt. That's what like uh, fresh teenagers do, like newly uh. minted, freshly minted teenagers. It's as if they're walking around pulling on lamp cords to see if the lamp will fall over, like a toddler, <laughs> you know. But that's how they understand the world, right? And that's how. So once, when my daughter was a toddler, she had these sketchers covered in glitter, and mm-hmm. I said, "Don't go." It was in Atlanta. It was pouring rain. Don't go in the puddles with those because the glitter will fall off. So I look out the window like one minute later, she's at the end of the driveway in a giant puddle looking at her shoes. And she and I like freaked. I started running down the driveway. She's like, what? I just bought And she said, I didn't believe you. And look, you were wrong. And I was like, I'm re- I really should punish you right now. But I'm so proud of you. So proud of you. <laughs> Uh, that's that's funny and then her kindergarten teacher which was after that she wasn't even kindergarten yet was like this girl asked too many questions I'm like no she asked just the right amount but then when they're like in 8th grade then they start asking questions they know the answer to and that's not as cute but but you want them to push boundaries and limits that's why like in the day you're like don't tell kids that pot makes you psychotic because then they're not going to believe that tripping makes you psychotic because they'll smoke pot and they'll know it doesn't, you know? And then they create an entire anti-drug program telling you that smoking pot makes you psychotic. <laughs> exactly. And it's Ugh. and that's why, and then look what happens with the drugs are probably worse than ever. I don't know, but. I don't, I'm uh, sure that they're certainly more potent than ever. That's for sure. But they've Yes, that's right. Yeah. But yes, but they have used all these triggers, all these excuses. And in so so one thing that's happening with the the 
with terrorism, the drug war, and now with the mass shootings, making them domestic terrorists is these are all kind of foreigners or people who are considered like subhuman, not people. So yep. they can't be covered by the 14th. The 14th Amendment is a, is a controversial amendment because of right. the incorporation. Yeah. yeah. But and I, I'm not a fan of that because generally speaking, because the First Amendment gets abused based on that. Like they say states can't have their own laws about like religion or whatever. Like they can take religion out of a school, even if everybody in the town wants it because of the right. First Amendment, because of incorporation, which is not true because it says Congress shall pass no law. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you I'm could even you. use incorporation for that. You could even say it was incorporated for that because it, it says expressly it only pertains to Congress in that express way. So you could actually say the rest pertains to everybody because it's not expressly just Congress. But anyway, whatever. Oh, totally. So the 14th Amendment, like if you read that, you can see it it dovetails again. This is a thing like where where I said like gun rights advocates and are against drug rights for what reason? I don't know. It's like a hypocritical kind of thing, contradictory. Same yeah. thing with, with the 14th Amendment. They'll say, well, they don't deserve the rights and the Bill of Rights because they're not American. And I'm like, okay, so are you telling me that God gave you those rights or that the government gave you those rights? Because if the government gave those rights and they only apply to Americans, the government can take those rights away from you. Is that correct? And they don't want to say that. They really they really just like short circuit when you say that to them <laughs> because it's true. So I, I don't, the Bill of Rights is just writing down a few of the rights I have. Yeah, and it's not all rights, of them. Yeah, that are pertinent to restraining government specifically. They're absolutely just yeah. pertain to restraining government. And they, and so when they, they, they're using these excuses, it's kind of like the way you, they use the excuse of like colonialism, indigenous people or slaves that they didn't have souls. So they didn't have to have the same, you know, they didn't have the same rights. Like you mm -hmm. can't separate people out from what we consider to be basic human rights. So when they look at, or God given rights or natural rights, however you want to say it, civil rights, whatever political bent you're in is how you use the words, but the domestic terrorism thing and uh, and the drug, all that stuff are, they just use them as excuses to get around rights and, Absolutely. and, I, and it's going to get worse. So like I can mm -hmm. see that they're, they're going, they're using these tools that they excuse by saying mass shooters are domestic terrorists. They don't have these rights. You can surveil everybody because of blah, blah, blah. And then they're using it to say these kids made racial slurs. And I'm not sure uh, my kids say stuff or I hear boys in my kids school say stuff to each other that I think is rude. And of course. to each other about their like just like the old days, you know, like saying yeah. the thing that is the meanest thing or that's a <laughs> jokey thing, you know, a joke thing. And I'll be like, that is absolutely rude. And he's just like, hey, Karen, shut up. <laughs> like, okay, say it. Ouch. Oh, man. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm so irrelevant. I'm irrelevant. <laughs> that's okay. I'm too. Well, so, um, you know, and I always thought I was going to be the cool dad too. No, that didn't happen. But so anyway. Um, that's the worst thing you could do. Uh, exactly. Uh, so, and I'm glad I did. So anyway, like, here's the thing about that is that they always try this stuff out on the least, the, like the least human, the least popular people. And that always becomes a vehicle for them to use it on everybody else. And I think a great example of this is like Julian Assange. So the government literally just turned him into a little mini Saddam Hussein. And uh, <laughs> they, they said, oh, this guy's mean and is cat smell or you know he's got a cat he, he hurts his cat and he, you know we don't like him and all that stuff and what they've essentially done is they've proven that they can incarcerate anybody for just publishing anything but like here's the problem that i have with all this type of stuff is that the empire always comes home 
I don't know who said that first, but it's absolutely 100% true. And it used to be just in tactics and strategy, <clears throat> or excuse me, it used to just be tactics and equipment and stuff like that. Like I'm seeing there, our local police department here has a vehicle that has heavier armor than the vehicle that I deployed in Iraq t- in 2006 and drove around for a whole year in Baghdad in. Wow. That is absolutely crazy. Um, yeah, they've got an MRAP and I mean, we had Humvees back then and there, there's that. And then there's so many of these guys that were in the military in Iraq and Afghanistan that are now cops too. And I'll tell you this much is that some of the guys that I patrol with, if they were in my town as police officers, I'd be scared to death of them. And then uh, there's just so much of that. And people don't ever understand that whatever the government does there it's going to do here eventually britain did the same thing with gun control they did they took away guns in the colonies of all their different um yeah you know holdings yeah yeah absolutely uh so here's the last thing i was going to say is that the thing is that now we've kind of shifted from that to now they're making it over like we're like bar is literally saying like yeah we're going to use the stuff we learned in the war on terror where we were drone bombing people because they had a cell phone signal on them and we're going to do it here so go ahead. <laughs> yeah, the two things. One is the militarization of the police was absolutely uniting us versus them very well. There was a book came out from a guy who used to write for Reason called The Militarization of the Police. Bradley Balco. Yeah. Yes. I think there was another. Uh, there, Rising yes, the Warrior the, Cop. That's that what it? it's called. Yeah, yeah. You got it right. That's the author and the title. Great book. Uh, but I, yeah, I, as soon as that book came out, I did a show on it immediately and people were all over it. And then even a couple of months later, it became a really important theme that were working people up. And I remember that I I got a lot of kudos saying like from the station, everything, man, you were way ahead of this topic. Wow, that was amazing. And I was like, well, that guy wrote the book. Like I didn't, I wasn't really <laughs> ahead of it, but I noticed it was important and I understood what he was saying. And then right after that, you had Trayvon Martin and then you had Ferguson and they just oh, yeah. decided to make it black versus blue because it was us versus them. Yep. And the cynical racism at the heart of that, of the, of the Black Lives Matters movement is by saying this is only a problem for black people, right. it, it makes white people put it on the B list. Not that they don't want a B for like A versus B, like they put it, don't put it on their A list because not because they they don't think black lives matter, but it's not urgent. Whereas when it was your town, what you just said, or when they saw the SWAT team doing no knock raids and, and throwing a, a hand grenade into a baby. Yeah, they did yeah. that in Atlanta. It was a big problem. The baby yeah. was all messed up. Oh, that's when, awful. So people get killed like that all the time in places that have gun rights yep. because the cops will come in in the middle of the night and and the homeowner will have a gun and they'll kill him. Oh, yeah. And they get away with it. So that was a big problem. And then I had something about the British thing. Well, um, let me say this real quick is that, you know, what I, what I find ex- it's exceedingly frustrating um, about about what you just hit on is that, uh, okay, so I'm I'm white. And I did time. I did three years in prison. And I hear people all the time on social media saying, well, the criminal justice system disproportionately affects people of color. And yes, that may be true. But like the problem I have is that, you know, if you just say it affects everybody, you would probably get a lot more traction with a lot of people. And I'd imagine that's probably an effect of what you just described. I'm certain. 
Yeah, that I haven't thought about it that way. And I, I will be kind of aware of it going forward because my view is that it's it's getting to a fevered pitch where race is being exploited, not not really at the, at the expense of white people. It's really right. they're targeting. So I have this I have this show in on WSB in Atlanta which is on the Rush Limbaugh station, right? The, so everybody's listening to Rush during the weekend. On the weekends, they're turning in there, all of a sudden they hear this girl, right? So they aren't always on my same wavelength because I'm like, that didn't really happen or <laughs> they're just messing with you. Like, this is what's really all about. And my station was just absolutely shocked that so many of my listeners and callers are African-American Atlantans. Because Interesting. they have never, they always saw the lie. Like even if you look at the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, they were excluded from it. So yeah. they know that you can be, you can you can be totally uh, abused by the system, even as the system is patting itself on its bat on the back for <laughs> the being like the freest thing ever. That's like I was at a Fourth of July party with my son. And uh, and they were trotting out all the military guys and they were going off to war. This was a couple of years ago and they had Ugh. the flags and everything. And the guy was like, 4th of July and reading from the Declaration of Independence. My son <laughs> was like only 10, 10 or something at the time. He looks over at me and goes, Mom, don't go all Frederick Douglass now, okay? <laughs> because Frederick, <laughs> Frederick Douglass has a 4th of July speech that I read to my kids that it's like, hey, man, oh, I get great. it. You guys are awesome and everything, but... <laughs> you know, <laughs> aren't you forgetting something? <laughs> so, so it get it it they by co-opting them into like just just vote Democrat. Everything's gonna be okay. I can't believe that they're still trying that after Obama it was such a disappointment to everybody. It, it was every, yeah. they in when it's just like Trump. Like when you actually look at the policies, nobody's really happy with that. That wasn't on your wish list. That wasn't there. No. So I I think that that kind of stuff it's it, it is in their interest to keep the the facades and the wars and the tension, the disunity, all that stuff. But I, I don't want to get into that again. No, it's just, they force <laughs> it. You know, it's always the top of the, it's always like such a pressing, it's always a subject in the news. Like I cover the news so much and they're always using that. I just get so sick of it. Yeah, it is. Cynical. It is very frustrating, but yeah. Two but I did have that. something about, about British. Oh, you want to? Oh, no, no, go ahead. Um, Let me do the British thing and you can get back to that. Yeah. Uh, only because it's important for the second amendment is that, when you said it like the British took the guns away mm -hmm. for us, I firmly believe that the second amendment is what stands between us and world tyranny. Because if Britain or Australia or whatever started jackbooting into people's houses and uh, enslaving them openly because they don't have guns, we would, we would, it would be a wake up call for us. Yeah, I would hope so. so so they can't get crazy with power, even though they do their their citizens no longer have parity, right? But but right. their their structure looks like they do. But yeah. that's because if the truth of what you said is revealed country by country, Carly, it's kind of like the anti-vax thing. I think the reason they don't want anti-vaxing to spread is because then they would have like this huge population where you'd be like, oh, it really does. Like none of those kids have lots. Right. Like, I don't know. But what I'm else have they been saying, lying you know, about? Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, you just, and you look and you, you could just have kind of proof positive. So if you're like, well, nothing happened in England, nothing happened in Australia, it's totally fine. I'm like, well, that's because we still have our guns and it's our guns they really need because we're the powerhouse. Yeah, fair enough. I, I can I can definitely say it. Well, you know, the other flip side of that too is that uh, the frustrating thing is that we actually do have pretty clear examples of what happens in these countries when they institute gun control and is that, um, I mean, the the rape rate in Australia is oh, yes. through the yes, roof street now. Street crime, yes, yes. Yes, street crime. They are uh, afraid. You meet Europeans and stuff and they're afraid like you're going to leave your phone in your car. I'm like, of course I am. Like, why right. would I not leave my phone in my car? <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm like, what yeah, are you talking crazy. about? Like, somebody's going to break into your car. I'm like, definitely not. <laughs> break into my car. You know, this is when people have these rights and yeah. they are always told that, that there are people dying of gunshot wounds right outside of hospitals and the gun because we have tons of guns and no health care. <laughs> <laughs> They're amazed when it's not like that. I know that is funny. I've, I've known so many European people that essentially have that kind of same perspective and take it. I remember taking a couple of them shooting one time. They were like, Oh, this is actually pretty awesome. And it's like, yeah, man, it uh, is pretty fun. <laughs> how about that? But, but they don't believe you. They'll argue with you. That's not true. It's like, it's definitely true. I've never seen anybody with a gunshot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a, uh, I'm sure you have. <laughs> that's not what I was laughing about. But yeah, oh, I know. There's a, uh, there's, yeah, I was just, oh, I lost my train of thought now. Oh, I'm but, sorry. I do that no, to right. people because I never stop talking. Nah, it's been sorry. Right. It's been a great talk. Um, damn it. Oh, here, here's the thing is, is also too, is that, uh, the UK especially, uh, has really this crazy police state that exists there too. Um, theirs is not as overtly violent as ours is, but when you consider the amount of sheer surveillance in the UK where they have cameras that like scold people, you know, for littering and whatnot now. Oh, they um, do? Yeah, they were there's a pilot program in one of the suburbs of London where they have a, a cop monitoring these cameras and if somebody litters, the, the you know, the guy will say, Hey, why don't you please pick that up? You in the blue shirt. <laughs> like, uh, Judge Knapp warned of that a few years ago, and I was like, "Come on, isn't that uh, going a little too far?" I don't, I don't know if they've if they've actually moved it out of the test phase, but yeah, that's yeah, definitely no, a pilot coming, program. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that is right. That is the good question, though, is that um, these governments? I mean, I'm sure they would love to just you know really impose their will on all of us, and the question always is why. So maybe that does. Uh, help shed some light on that. Um, but we're getting, we're coming up on pretty close on time, uh, Monica. There was one last thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, maybe you could expand a little bit for me. So on your show, you talk about, uh, I think it was either a Rockefeller or maybe a Carnegie Institute document that yeah. was about uh, war and collectivism. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes, there was a video about an hour long by G. Edward Griffith. Is that okay. the, am I saying yeah, that right? Yeah, um, the, the creature uh, from Jekyll Island. Yes, G. Edward Griffin, I think. But anyway, it's I know you're talking about. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. I always get the last part right. But he he interviewed long, long time ago. Griffin was young, and Norman Dodd, who he interviewed, was quite uh, old. Okay. And he said... So you know what I'm talking about. He uh, no, actually, but um, okay. Go so ahead. <laughs> the Reese Commission, the Reese Commission was in the 50s or 60s. I can't. Must have been in the 50s. Yeah, House on American Activities Committee. I think was part of it. They were trying to figure out if tax-exempt foundations were un-American, and they did. Renee Wormser was the lawyer, and Norman Todd was the researcher, and they were trying to determine whether tax-exempt foundations, think tanks in this country were or that kind of thing 
foundations, really, but that they were un-American. So he looked into the Carnegie Endowment and for some reason, without realizing it, they allowed his woman of Norman Dodds, I think her name was Catherine Casey's or Catherine Carey, I think Catherine Casey, her her to to just go in there and look at all their meeting notes, the minutes from their meetings. And what she saw at the inception of the Carnegie Endowment was that they wanted to move the the feeling, the culture of America from individualism to collectivism. They wanted to really change it. And they they figured out, they did a study, I think it took them like a year, of how that would best, how what was the easiest way to change a culture. Mm-hmm. And they determined that the easiest way was war. So they worked on, I don't know if they worked on fomenting World War One or or just getting America to join World War One, but that was what they intended to do. And one of the things that was accomplished in the time frame they set out. And then another thing, I believe it was them, or maybe it was another similar organization, decide, uh, established institutions of like associations. So they would go to a historical association and they would they would create this thing and they'd say we're going to start this association this is the history that we want you to teach and the existing teachers would not do it they had to kind of generation out i hate to use expressions like they had to wait till the next <laughs> generation to to for that to take uh, but there was i think with the economists they could do an econ- economist association where economists in a free society are irrelevant <laughs> you know <laughs> right. they're just irrelevant so they said well with a centralized economy you will have an exalted position so they did get uh. people to sign on to that but this was so what they wanted with with america with the historians was to go back and and talk about all the negative things about our history because our history was individualistic and if they could make it look like that was our fundamental culture was bad, then they could replace it with something else, which is how cults work. You know, they tear you down and then they <laughs> replace it with something. Right. And that's, that's a part of the American historical association too, right? That was the one. I, I'm, I'm not sure that was the Carnegie endowment thing, but I, the story I'm talking about, maybe I read it in Murray in, in a Murray Rothbard book, but it was, I do remember having read that it was the American Historical Association. I believe that was the actual, the, uh, the one I'm talking about. They were trying to kind of rewrite history and they could not get the people to do it at, in real time. But, but okay. from that moment forward, they basically had control. And all you really have to do is, is buy, the, buy the book publishers. Right, right, right. good point. Because I've always wondered uh, why... Okay, I'm just a dummy, right? I hit st- I hit stuff with a hammer for a living. And why why do I always read like establishment mainstream history and I can find all these things that are just flat out wrong? And I've always yeah. wondered why that was. And maybe that's why. I I don't know. I it's I was just talking the other day, uh I've mentioned this once before, but like I I talked to I had it um did a podcast with Lions of Liberty and Oh, nice. Wanted to know it was yeah, awesome. I um, <laughs> it was an honor, but I he wanted to know like what was my like most shocking conspiracy theory, like the most significant conspiracy theory, and I had to say JFK, which was a disappointment for him, I'm sure, but <laughs> but it is significant because it's such an open secret, yeah, that it points out what a crock of shit is the history books that our kids are being taught, like 
every every brick that's laid upon the foundation of the lone shooter uh, edifice, whatever right. um, structure of the JFK assassination is a lie because the government covered it up. So what is our government? So like, how can you say you know what our government is? How can you teach our truth about this government when this government continues to to cover up the assassination, the insider job of the killing of a, a what the boss. Is told us a super popular president right who want, i mean it, it's just mind-boggling this is not america right this that is not what we're taught is america and that's why i think it's i mean they can do anything right they can control any story oh yeah they really can especially if you look at america now versus america then when they uh, norman dodd was in the reese commission man it's a uh, and you see too, like the collectivism. Remember, I'm sure you remember 9 11. Uh, and you know, what's funny is that 9 11 happened when I was in high school, and I was so worried that the Iraq war was going to be over by the time I, I was able to enlist. That's wow. Why- <laughs> wow. Oh, man. I know. How about that? But no, just like the. Could have gone know, to right? Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. I- <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. No, it was. It was a mass trauma of the highest order. Terrible yeah. things. It's sick to think that even that that the 9-11 commission report does not address that third building that came down in New York. I mean, I don't care what you think about 9-11 or anything. What does this say about our government that that crucial puzzle solving piece is not addressed? Says we live under a pathocracy. (laughs) Exactly. Don't trust your history books. No, unless it's Murray Rothbard, then you could probably trust that one. <laughs> but still do your research. But I mean, yeah, it's crazy that just the amount of uh like you saw that like the kind of hyper patriotism after after 9-11. And it took, I don't know, maybe 10 years to wear off or so. And there's still remnants of it. But just like you you know, you remember when people anybody that criticized the Afghanistan and Iraq war in the early days were like, shut up, commie, like you hate America. Why don't you get the hell out? And that's that's a, a yeah, even liberals had huge. Yeah, <laughs> my sister's a liberal, and on her husband's motorcycle, he had a full size American flag. <laughs> I mean, now she was just like she'll like turn her nose up at the flag. She's like, Ugh, you're fascist. It's like that is not uh, fascism. But I do not, not like that be. it is a symbol of unjust war. Now, I mean, that yeah. is very very upsetting. But she was totally absolutely when it was a symbol of unjust war, not when it was a symbol of economic liberty. You know? <laughs> right? So. Yeah, that is that does suck, honestly. But it is it is really a testament to what they uh, what they found in that commission. So anyway. Monica, why don't you give us your plugs one last time? Sure. I, so many of the things that we've talked about are themes that I weave in. I kind of feel like the tapestry is getting woven. Some of the threads come and go. But if you listen, <laughs> so I don't know how it comes across. I do a show every day with Binkley, my producer, and um, he's the co-host on my daily show, which is the Drive Time News Blast, which you can get at thepropreport.com. That, so you can listen to just the news of the day without all the mainstream propaganda and all that stuff. But I, I usually just try to take these libertarian ideas, ideas about truth and justice 
and apply them to the news that we're that uh, is otherwise just riddled with propaganda. And then I also have a terrestrial show, the Monica Perez show on WSB Saturdays from three to six. And then we do a deep dive. Binkley and I do a deep dive on the propaganda report every couple of weeks. So you can find out when I say us and them, who am I really talking about? And he plays us lots of like good audio where them in their own words are saying what they are doing to us. That's always fun. Too. But you can get everything at thepropreport.com. Awesome. Definitely check that out. And as for us, uh, if you want to talk to me, the host, Matt, you can find me on Twitter at status quo pod, or you can shoot us an email, the status quo at gmail.com. Website is the status quo.net. And there you'll find blog posts, articles uh, that Nick and I have written every single episode of the show and extended show notes. Uh, that is the definitely the best place if you uh, want to find anything that we've written or recorded over the years, it'll always be there. And the show, of course, will always be free. But hey, if you want to kick us a couple dollars, um, Patreon will be up sometime in the next five years. So I'll get to that eventually, I swear. <laughs> but anyway, if you guys up to the second line, you need to hang out for it. Yeah, sure. That was super fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.